Hello and welcome to Good Food Unearthed. I am joined today by James Corbett of the Corbett Report, an open source intelligence news uh, website you can find online that has podcasts, interviews, articles, uh, documentaries, including on how big oil conquered the world and why big oil conquered the world um, and much more. It was started in 2007 and James himself is an award-winning investigative journalist. Um, and I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about why you started this, and then we'll go on from there. Uh, it was essentially not anything that I ever planned to do in my life. I had absolutely no intention or inclination to start a website or to start a podcast or anything of the sort. But it was in 2006 that I started examining, uh, first of all, it was 9-11 truth. And then I started to get into other subjects. And I found there was an incredible amount of interesting and compelling and documentable evidence on various subjects that I had never learned in school or read in the newspaper or anything of that sort. Incredibly important context to, to the world that I was living in. And I found the discrepancy between that information that I was able to independently verify for myself through direct uh, looking at documents and archives and other such things versus what was being presented to me through the media and, and uh, education system and what have you. That disconnect was so large, so profound that I felt I had to insert myself into that in some way. And since we are living in the age of the internet, what a glorious age to be able to spread information around the world. I did that really because I felt compelled to do something. And I never in a million years would have imagined that I would be able to reach millions, literally millions of people around the globe. It's still incomprehensible to me. It's incomprehensible that I'm doing this for a living, something that I couldn't have even imagined as an occupation when I was in high school. I'll be a podcaster in Japan someday. It's just absolutely mind boggling to me. I don't take it granted for granted and I don't take it lightly because I think there is a brief window of opportunity here before the censorship regime that we see coming in uh, is really uh, closed down on the internet. So I'm trying to take the most advantage of it that I can. Yeah, and um, I'm really fortunate to have discovered your work, um, and I'd like to go over some of that uh, with our audience here, um, because when how I actually came across you was I started looking into um, what was going on with COVID-19, uh, because as a training health educator, it just, it didn't add up. And I thought all of this is illogical, but then I had this sense that it's almost like this big chess game I've stumbled across, this long-term chess game. And uh, I had to figure out what, what was going on. So it turns out, like you were saying, there's a lot of documented evidence and to, to back um, the story that turns out not to be so much conspiracy theory as conspiracy fact. Um, so I wonder if you could tell us a bit about um, how it's so easy for us to be moving so quickly into this bioterror paradigm with this medical martial law. What kind of groundwork has been laid? You know, you raise such a good analogy there of the chess game. Um, I think that is a good way of framing it because there is clearly something that is taking place that involves long-term strategizing on a level that I don't think the public even comprehends is going on, let alone understands the various moves that are being made. Because, as I say, there's so much incredibly important evidence that's been occluded from our attention um, or has never been presented to us at all. And 
examples of that uh, go back to work that I've been doing for years and years now. In fact, I had an episode on the concept of medical martial law uh, in 2008 was when I first covered this subject. So I've been talking about this for quite a while. I've talked about the, uh, the, the takeover and the creation of what we think of as public health and healthcare systems by uh, profoundly important and influential organizations like the Rockefeller Foundation and others in work that I've done on Rockefeller medicine. And I followed the trail from such things as the anthrax attacks in 2001 towards the creation of essentially the framework, the legislative and institutional framework for what we are seeing happening right now, which is all of these public health bodies and, and uh, legislative instruments are suddenly being employed in response to a declared public health emergency. Uh, and we see the importance of institutions like the World Health Organization, which I have covered extensively in specifically regards to the 2009 swine flu pandemic hysteria that we all saw um, taking place 11 years ago that uh, I think laid a lot of the groundwork. So essentially, we're looking at things like um, in the United States, for example, the Public State Health Emergency Act, which is a uh, uh, not an, uh, not a, a specific legislative instru instrument, it's a template that can be used by state governments essentially to enact their own public health emergency laws. Um, but it's, it's a template that includes such things as the ability for the government to come in and quarantine anyone that it deems to be a public health threat and, if need be, to forcibly vaccinate them against their will. And uh, this... Uh, this legislation, this this template was drafted up in the wake of the 2001 anthrax attacks to respond to future public health emergencies and was implemented in state after state after state around the United States. Uh, the World Health Organization um, passed uh, a, a new regulation that was signed on to by basically the entire world in 2006 that revolves around uh, the, the idea of a de declared public health emergency. Um, which the WHO essentially gets to create a, an advisory council that will advise them when there is an event taking place that meets their, their criteria for public health emergency. And once that is activated, then the various signatories to that convention that was passed in 2006 are mandated to do certain things like, um, uh, for example, of course, sharing data with the WHO, but more importantly, I think, uh, implementing their various public health emergency plans. Mm -hmm. So we are seeing the flipping of a switch that has been laid and, and carefully um, laid groundwork for essentially what I have termed medical martial law, um, which may sound at first glance, it may sound like a bit uh, uh, alarmist or, or um, exaggerated, but I think given the fact that we are living through a period of time when over half of the world's population has lived through some form of lockdown or restriction of movement, and uh, we are increasingly being told that in order, of course, to pass international boundaries, we're going to need some form of COVID passport that they are currently working on constructing right now. But even as we are seeing already taking place in China, but that is being discussed elsewhere, even the idea of passing into public spaces, uh, government buildings, for example, or eventually even to go shopping or to leave a certain declared district around an outbreak or hotspot area, you will need to have your COVID passport, your vaccination or Im Im uh, immunity passport that will prove that you are safe to travel. And um, anyone who is not concerned 
about the way that that could be abused is clearly not paying attention to what is happening uh, in the bigger picture of things. So these these are the concerns that, as I say, I've been talking about for at least 12 years now, and I think are unfortunately, to much much to my horror, are, are really coming true right at this moment. And I, I really, truly, profoundly wish I was wrong about these things, but unfortunately, events are starting to uh, prove what I was talking about. Well, what's really interesting, you mentioned the swine flu, the H1N1, and I was lucky enough to actually have had no connection to that whatsoever. I was traveling. um, I was in India. I had no television, no, and nobody there was talking about it. Nobody there was reporting on it. It just completely went over my head. And I found out um, about it um, through my own research, looking at studies, and I found the Tamiflu fiasco. Um, And it's interesting how um, it's documented how that was exposed but I still hear people talk about it like it was a real thing that was dangerous and swept the world. And could you tell us a bit about that swine flu incident? Yes, it's it's so instructive of what we're living through right now. Um, it is extremely important to note that even the Council of Europe had an investigative committee that came to the discovery that a lot of the people that were on the advisory council that, again, got to advise the World Health Organization that this was a public health emergency of international concern, and PHEIC, which is the technical definition that was embedded in that 2006 treaty that was passed, the advisory council that was advising the WHO on this declaration were themselves riddled with conflicts of interest, including ties to the boards of some of the uh, pharmaceutical manufacturers who stood to benefit from the uh, flipping of that PHEIC switch, which mandated all of these governments that were signatories to buy vaccinations or to buy pharmaceuticals um, to, to address this concern. And that's exactly what happened. And lots of money was made by the pharmaceutical in- industry as a direct result of that PHEIC, which Ultimately, the long story short is uh, the 2009 flu season turned out to be less deadly than the average flu season. Uh, And yet this was, uh, I I, unfortunately, unlike you, I had a very direct experience of of this even here in Japan, where at that time I was teaching uh, in the public school system here. And we had schools that were shut down for days at a time because one student fell ill with a, a fever. And there was genuine panic in a lot of the population uh, as a result of that. So I I saw that and I was covering it on the site at the time and talking about, for example, the Council of Europe's investigation and um, some of the other things like the fact that uh, the WHO's page in which they described an influenza pandemic and their criteria for an influenza pandemic included the phrase uh, something along the lines of um, uh, mass scale death or, or large numbers of deaths or something along those lines. Those words were literally removed from the definition just months before this public health emergency was declared. Uh, just staggering facts like that that really do make you think about the degree to which at least the infrastructure for what happened in 2009 was was laid in advance. And then the the fact that 2009 and, and everything that resulted from that laid the infrastructure for what's happening today in 2020 is, I think, really instructive of what we're living through. Yeah, the, the changing of definitions I found very interesting, um, especially with the definition of a pandemic, because it's if you don't stop to ask questions, a lot of people 
that's a great way to trick their mind because they go with the assumption of what they imagine a pandemic would look like. And they don't check to see what the official definition is, what qualifies for it. Um, was really interesting, I just read an article today um, from the Informed Consent Action Network and the FDA has um, admitted that their uh, regulatory um, committee for the COVID vaccines, um, the people on there are basically all have conflicts of interest and ties to pharmaceutical industries, but they said they're not gonna do anything about it. They refuse to. Um, and, and going back to the medical martial law, um, what I find interesting is I did look at, I'm here in Newfoundland and Labrador, and I looked at our statutes and we have a public health uh, promotion act. And I noticed the time period that it was put in place and it wasn't that long ago. Um, but what's interesting is it gives a unelected official tremendous power to do whatever they want. It's basically up to their discretion as long as it's signed off by the Lieutenant Governor. What's, what's really interesting about this though is here in Canada, we've had a lot of pushback. And I heard on CBC radio the other day, they came on with this uh, story saying, well, you know, the chief medical officer, they really, all they do is advise the government. They don't have the power to do anything. So it's kind of kind of interesting, but a lot of people think that they do have that power. There's not much questioning going on there. Um, so I wonder, uh, with this bioterror paradigm, if we could touch a bit on that, because so many people are just so afraid of viral infections and infectious disease, just absolutely terrified to the point where they're shaming people and saying, you know, you're not doing enough. You should just follow the orders. Just listen. You don't know what you're talking about. Follow the experts. How did we get to that point? You know, it's such an important, prof profoundly important question for what we're living through, um, because I, I Something that I've been pointing out since the beginning of this, I did a, a, a short video called uh, What No One Is Saying About the Corona Crisis, in which I attempted to articulate this, but was really, I think, expertly articulated by an Italian philosopher named Giorgio Agamben, who has uh, um, coined this term of a biosecurity state, um, which is what we see coming into view on the back of this, this terror that's sweeping through the population right now. And he, he points out that essentially the type of fear state that the public is being put into over this, this uh, current crisis concern is uh, uh, analogous to, or in fact, an extension of the fear state that we've been subjected to for the last couple of decades in the war on terror paradigm. He writes, for example, we might say that once terrorism was exhausted as a justification for exceptional measures, like the abrogation of basic constitutional rights or charter rights or what have you, depending on your locality, the invention of an epidemic could offer the ideal pretext for broadening such measures beyond any limitation. The other factor, no less disquieting, is the state of fear, which in recent years has diffused into individual consciousnesses and which translates into a real need for states of collective panic, for which the epidemic once again offers the ideal pretext. Therefore, in a perverse, vicious circle, the limitation of freedom imposed by governments is accepted in the name of a desire for safety, which has been created by the same governments who now intervene to satisfy it, um, which is such a profoundly important 
summary, essentially, of the fear state that we're being put into as a result of all of this. And in fact, uh, it's important to point out that uh, this this exact formulation essentially is being uh, echoed in the, the the writings and and the pontifications of people like Klaus Schwab, who people are starting to become acquainted with as the executive director of the World Economic Forum, who co-authored a book on the Great Reset that was uh, released this past uh, June or July, uh, just a few months into this crisis, in which he said, uh, what we are fighting against is invisible. Our family, friends, and neighbors may all become sources of infection. Those everyday rituals that we cherish, like meeting a friend in a public place, may become a vehicle for transmission, and the authorities that try to keep us safe by enforcing confinement measures are often perceived as agents of oppression. And he goes on to talk about this fundamental fear state that the public is being put into right now and how essentially this can be facilitated to start a great reset of the economy, of the social contract, of geopolitical relations, of education, of what it means to be human Mm -hmm. and the fourth industrial revolution and all of these crazy sci-fi type concepts that come embedded with this. But it goes back to that, what you're pointing out there, this fear state that the public is being put into of asymptomatic carriers of this invisible viral pathogen that is out there somewhere. So everyone essentially becomes a suspect. So we see all of the apparatus that has been laid for the past couple of decades to target the terrorists. The terrorists are could be anyone and they could be anywhere and they could be hiding under any bush. Now, anyone could be a bioterrorist and they may not even know it because you you have to be tested multiple times to even find out whether you may or may not be infected with this particular viral pathogen. And even if we were to take all of this at face value and say that the, everything here is just totally above board and everyone is doing this from good intentions, do we need to really flex our imagination muscle that much to understand how this could be used by nefarious people with nefarious agendas to target political enemies and essentially say these people are asymptomatic spreaders of this new viral pathogen. So we have to do X, Y, and Z, perhaps even including incarceration or whatever make uh, whatever else may result from that. That is the, the end result of this. And the worst part is seeing the way the public is now being pitted against each other as if they are the enemy because they may be carriers of this invisible pathogen. Yeah. Um, I think what's interesting about it is if you take off, if you take away the window dressing, like who's being described as the enemy and what we have to do, it's, there was um, one of the resources I came across from you looking into psychopathy was this book, um, Political Ponerology. And it seems like to be, it seems to be true that The people who are manipulating, they're clever to a certain extent, but it seems like the same game, just dressed up in a different way. Because if you look through history, and you probably, you will definitely know more about this than I do, (laughs) Um, it's, it's this tool that's used to create an enemy so that there's fear, and people will bind together, and they'll go in the direction you desire. And does that seem like, you know, the same, like, does that seem like to be the case? <laughs> yes, it certainly yeah. does. This is a paradigm that has been well tested throughout history. And it's 
something that I pointed to in a recent episode that I did on the dawn of the bioterrorism paradigm. Um, what was the exact title of that is going to escape my mind at the moment. But at any rate, people can look it up, episode 388, False Flags and the Dawn of Bioterrorism, where I talk about this tactic that has been employed time and time and time again throughout history to essentially rally the public around the flag or around the crown or around the government or around a particular agenda by taking some sort of situation, making pinning the blame for that on your political enemy and saying, look, we have to go after that enemy. And that has worked time and time again. And the obvious way in which that functions is by staging some sort of spectacular attack and blaming your political enemy for that attack. And I point to many examples that have that are uncontested and uncontroversial throughout history, uh, going back even to the 18th century and the Swedish king literally dressed up some of his uh, military troops in Russian military uniforms, gave them even Russian coins to put in their pockets, and then sent them to attack a Swedish outpost uh, in Finland, I believe, in order to say, look, the Russians are attacking us. We must go after them. Those types of just very basic deceptions have been employed documentably throughout history time and time again in order to rally the public around a certain agenda. And I, I think that at the very least, we can see how that could be used in our current paradigm um, around the prospect of some sort of bio-warfare attack, bioterrorism, or even not necessarily around bio-warfare or weaponized, but just saying there is some sort of spreading pathogen and now we must all rally around this idea, whatever this idea is. And unfortunately, the idea that's increasingly being proposed that we should be rallying around is some sort of great reset, which is... Uh, being pushed by, as I say, the World Economic Forum and its associates, the head of the IMF, the head of the, the UN uh, Secretary General, the Prince Charles. Many people have been associated with this idea. Uh, of course, I'm sure you know uh, Prime Minister uh, Trudeau was recently caught mouthing those words quite infamously. Yeah. Um, and this agenda uh, is being framed as all of these political agendas are in the politically feel-good mouth, mealy-mouthed buzzwords of inclusivity and sustainability and all of these things that we've been trained to, uh, like seals, to clap whenever we hear them without looking into the details of what is being proposed. And once you start to look into those details, you start to see some really horrific uh, ideas that are being put on the table that, again, are on the back of this biosecurity state and the, the ideas of the biosecurity state to essentially uh, control, track, surveil uh, every interaction that is done on a human level, of course, in order to protect us for our own safety. But of course, that is exactly what a tyrant would say, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And the interesting thing I, I think that I want to get to after um, we go to some solutions is like how to figure out what's true. Cause you mentioned about, you know, even in uh, people dressing up as soldiers from a different place and, and there's reports of that. And now we have the internet and people watching videos and they're just taking things in. But first I want to talk about, okay, so they've set this whole thing up. They've got the train going. It's, it's heading in that direction. We have this whole banking system that's, you know, controlled in a specific way. And, and most people think that that's just, just the way it is. There's no other way around it. Um, we have to appeal uh, to get our rulers to listen to us and accept our opinions. But 
there are other things we can do. And, and I, you have a great body of research on your website. People can put in the search engine solutions. And, and that's what I'd like to talk with you about now. Um, what were some of the most important things that you discovered through your research that any individual can start doing? Uh, well, I think it is important to understand that the political side of what we're looking at is essentially the shadows on the cave wall, to use Plato's cave uh, allegory. Um, these are the things that we're given to look at and to be excited about or to to be angry about uh, that really don't affect anything. You can punch the, the cave wall, but it's not going to affect the reality of what's going on behind you. And I think that's the way that we have to understand what's happening. We are presented with this political paradigm of these usually two competing political parties that are going to, you know, duke things out and we can get on team blue or team red, depending on our proclivities. But the reality of what's happening is at a deeper level. And one of the penny drop moments for me, the one, one of the things that really got me to understand that there was something much bigger going on was, as I say, I was in 2006, just starting to, to research about 9-11 and finding all of these things that I'd never uh, discovered before. But it wasn't until I started to get into the documentaries and, and books relating to the monetary paradigm and the creation of the central bank and the US Federal Reserve and how that system works and where, where does money come from? And of course, we've been trained to just think, oh, it, it grows on trees, ha ha ha, without ever actually coming to an understanding of what money is and where it comes from. And I think once we start to delve into that issue and start to look at the, the monetary paradigm that, we're, that we've been placed in to the extent that we are now the fish in the water who cannot, who don't understand the concept of water because we're swimming in it. What else is there? There's just water. And in the same way, we tend to think that these pieces of paper in our wallet, that is money, right? Or those digital numbers on our screen, that is money. And that's how we relate to each other. And that forms the fabric essentially of our, of our civilization. That is how we relate to other people. That is how we transact and interact with others. And that forms a basis that we don't even think to question. Um, so, when I talk about the ways that we can escape the agenda that we're being put into, all of that is predicated on the idea that, yes, uh, of course, within the controlled monetary paradigm that we've been steeped in, we're going to be presented with uh, such things as digital central bank digital currencies that are going to be implemented if people like the IMF and uh, the the uh, the head of the Federal Reserve in the U.S. and the head of the Bank of England in, in England and others have been talking about the central bank digital currency paradigm where you can watch the uh, the recent conversation that uh, Jerome Powell and Augustine Karsten and Kristalina uh, Georgieva had about this concept. And you can see Augustine Karsten getting positively gleeful about the concept of the central bank being able to, to see and, and understand every transaction that's going on in real time and have all of that data and it doesn't, again, it doesn't take a lot of imagination to see how that can be used to ultimately tie that into some sort of social credit scheme and or, oh, you know, we'll give you your UBI, your universal basic income, as long as you take the vaccine and abide by our biosecurity rules, etc. It doesn't, again, it doesn't take a lot of imagination to see where this is going. And as long as we accept this monetary paradigm that we've been steeped in, as long as we just take that for granted, we're going to be pushed along that way. And if you want to buy or sell in that economy, eventually you're going to be pushed into making choices that you don't necessarily want to make. So how do we retain our autonomy there? And that's going to have to come towards the creation of alternative or parallel systems that we can start transitioning onto. And I, I want to stress when we talk about this idea of transitioning onto a 
parallel uh, structure. It, this is not about 100%. You have to 100% all at once stop using, you know, dollars or, or whatever it, all at once, because that is a, a, an idea that a lot of people have. If this doesn't solve all of my problems overnight, then it's it's not a real solution. But that is a mental trap that we fall into because, uh, it, of course, this is a series of steps that we really should have started years, decades, centuries ago, perhaps. But at any rate, no time like the present. And there will be very little time in the future, uh, considering how quickly this is all accelerating right now. So that's the base level of what I think of as the solutions. And actually, the further, further base level of the monetary paradigm that we're steeped in is that any monetary system that you construct is based on some conception of community. You can have trustless uh, ecosystems of, uh, you know, Bitcoin or what have you. But at the very, very bottom of this, you're going to have to have communities of interest who come together because they understand the necessity of having something outside of the controlled paradigm to interact in and the, and understanding the reason why this is so important to do. And that community is going to be the basic form of this. So if you type solutions into my search bar, you're going to find dozens and dozens and dozens of reports I've done over the years, including talking about building communities, talking about uh, ways to uh, achieve, if not food, complete independence, at least more independence through guerrilla gardening and things like that. I talk about the peer-to-peer -peer economy, uh, the idea that we don't need these middlemen and these, these manufa mass manufacturers for these mass-made goods that have defined the industrial era paradigm that we've been li living through for centuries now, we can go back to something more like the artisanal craftsman sort of economy that existed hundreds of years ago, where people literally had cottage industries because they were literally working out of their home. That can happen again. And we have the ability to facilitate that sort of interaction to happen, which can then be brought into markets like farmers markets and what have you, where you can interact with people directly, including interacting with people in alternative currencies, complementary currencies, cryptocurrencies, precious metals, other ways that are not part of that monetary paradigm. All of this is a fabric that has to be woven together, and it's not going to happen overnight. The system that we've been living in has taken centuries to develop. We're not going to change it overnight, but we can start dipping our toes in that water and start making those kinds of changes that I think will be what will see us through any sort of disruption that may come economically or health-wise or otherwise. Yeah, yeah. And just like if people don't real like think that it's real that there can be conditions on you getting your income i actually interviewed dr pamela popper um, and she worked with some people who were on um, welfare and she discovered that if they refused to take their psychiatric medication they would be denied their food stamps and their welfare checks so there's conditions tied to that. And I see that being already implemented in the, um, in the COVID rules for the poorer communities. Um, and what's interesting um, about the alternative currencies that you mentioned is I actually have gone around and lived in some areas and tried to learn how to be sustainable. And I think you mentioned this in your uh, documentary, Century of Enslavement, um, about the Federal Reserve. At the very end, you talk about some solutions. And these small towns, they have farmers markets and they also have these alternative currencies that they've just agreed, you know, within the community, this is a form of trade to, you know, so we can trade our skills, our labor, and it works. 
it works for them. So it does exist and it's possible. Um, and in terms of growing things, I don't know if you grow any of your own food, but I grew up in a city in Chicago and I had no experience growing food. But when I started, I was kind of like overwhelmed. I didn't want to mess it up. And I learned how easy it is and how incredible um, nature supports itself and the seeds. It's just, it's a lot easier, not a lot less daunting than most people think to get started with that. Yes. And let me, let me underline that. I am certainly no green thumb. I grew up in a city. I certainly don't have much experience with this, but uh, my family too uh, has learned even uh, we are in a city in a rural part of Japan. Um, so we don't have a lot of space uh, where we are to to grow, but we do have access to a community uh, garden plot where we uh, planted a, a, a number of vegetables and we just harvested a bunch of potatoes, hundreds of potatoes, more than we could possibly eat ourselves. So of course we're sharing them with friends and neighbors and what have you, which is actually a, a very much a part of Japanese society. Uh, it's one of those things where you don't realize how culturally conditioned you are until you are in another culture where things happen differently. But yes, everyone out here has some sort of their, you know, grandparents rice patty or what have you. And, and come harvest time, you know, suddenly at the workplace or whatever, everyone's sharing everything that they've they've harvested. So that that uh, that idea, that ethos is still here in Japan to a greater extent than was back home in Canada when I lived there. So um, I am grateful for that. And it is important to understand, yeah, you don't have to be a green thumb. And again, you're not probably going to grow all of the food you ever need overnight. You know, it's not going to happen all at once, but you can start taking steps towards that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so we've got alternative currencies, uh, growing food, building community. And I guess that building community is the most essential one to look for because um, all individuals are going to be creative, so they'll come up with something. Um, but and, like and to, it's also yeah. important to note that I think that the 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 type of actions that we see are uh, quite literally at this moment cutting people off from one another, yes. literally physically distancing people from one another, and cutting off social interaction at least face to face, which is I think an important par part of what we have to be struggling against not uh, again i'm not talking about the particular health measures that are being uh, touted right now but just in terms of uh, re-establishing social contact between people um in whatever form that takes is going to be an important fundamental basis for this constructing communities and there are many ways to do that and i want people to understand that they are not alone if they have concerns with what is going on right now because i hear from a lot of people given the work that i do i'm so glad i found you i thought i was the only one and, you know, my my friends, my family don't understand. They they think I'm crazy for talking like this. But oh, I see there's other people. And it is important to know that yes, I think we are kept divided mentally and physically by a media slash government slash education system that wants you to believe you are the crazy fringe wingnut and no one thinks like you. But there are others. And until we start actually forming those communities, I think we will not understand the amount of power that we possess. The people always possess the power. Uh, the tyrants can only order people to do what they want them to do. But if we say no, they cannot implement what they want to do. That's such an important thing to understand and for people to, to realize you have the power with what you do or do not do. Yeah, absolutely. And um, in terms of people discovering what's going on, and a lot of people have started doing their own research. So I wonder, um, you did a great video on welcoming new conspiracy theorists. And I wonder if you could talk about um, 
some solutions in examining the truth and advice for people doing research? It is extremely difficult to do research. It is not easy. And that, I think, obviously leads to a lot of people wanting to outsource that to others, which is why one of the most common questions I've ever received is, well, who do you recommend? And I understand you know, what, what, what news source or what person do you recommend that I go to? And I understand the, the, the inclination that people have for that. Well, just give me who should I follow and I'll follow them uh, because it's easier to offload sort of this intellectual activity. Um, but we do that at our own risk and our own detriment. I don't recommend any particular person or any particular source, even myself. I don't, I don't say that you should ever trust what I am saying or just take it at face value. I, that's, of course, the reason why I always provide links to all of the source documents of what I'm talking about in all of my work, because I really do want people to look at it for themselves. The question of how you start researching and what that looks like from the ground level um, well, I mean, there's there's so many different variables in that that it really, I think, ma- matters case to case. But I, I, I have attempted to give sort of general ideas of gen- general ways of looking up information in the past, but that's hard to do. But something that I started doing earlier this year and that I think I, I need to continue in a more regular series is fact check videos, mm-hmm. where I talk about um, certain ideas that are being bandied about and whether whether they do ha- stand up to the sniff test or not. And hopefully like, I do propaganda so. Propaganda watch? Well, I do have the Propaganda Watch series where specifically I look at pieces of propaganda and dissect how they are working on the public to misinform them or mislead them. Um, But uh, there was a specific series that I started called Fact Check where I looked, for example, uh, there was a video going around of the God gene vaccine and it was purported to be Bill Gates delivering a lecture to the CIA about a God gene (laughs) vaccine or something along those lines. And I... I examined that video and showed why this is not Bill Gates. This was part of a documentary that was in production 10 years ago that um, there's a number of mysterious factors around it and um, not it's not to be taken at face value, etc. And I think by deconstructing things like that and showing how we can verify who what what is this and who is this and how do we know this is fake and things like that, that can be a, a useful service too. And of course, it goes the other way. It can be a fact check against things that are coming from the mainstream, um, claims being made about the efficacy or safety of these experimental mRNA vaccines or what have you, we can deconstruct those claims. And I think modeling that and showing how I would go about researching and and verifying or uh, undermining various claims that are being made can be helpful, which is why I do want to continue that series. And there's no end to the number of fact checks that could be made. I mean, I'm sure you've seen a lot of the theories that go that get bandied about that don't have a lot of backing to them, like the the Rothschilds patented COVID-19 in 2015 or something like that. And I've seen a lot of claims like that that I can I can debunk and and fairly easily so. Um, but it would be more, I think, beneficial for me to do that in a format that other people can see, not specifically about that claim, but just to see the process of going about verifying or debunking various claims. Yeah, yeah. And I, I wonder if you could um give us a what you think or how you perceive truth to be because a lot of people are like you said they're outsourcing and i think that's why it's so successful right now that a lot of people are saying trust the experts and we have this thing about trust the science that seems to be not actually science based at all so how what is your uh, view on truth and how do you how do you tell when you've come across it? 
That's such an important question, isn't it? And, uh, you know, I am a bit nervous about capital T truth and thinking that I have the truth. Um, that is an extremely pretentious claim to be making. Um, even, I mean, uh, really, let's look at this from a really scientific perspective, not science as in a, a noun, trust the science as if there is such a thing to trust. But no, the process by which we come to a better understanding about the world around us, uh, which is a process of induction, which means that we do not know everything. And there could be a piece of data that we receive tomorrow that completely upends what we think we know about any given process. Um, there's so much that we just do not know and cannot know. So we have to tentatively come to conclusions based on evidence that can change. And it's really that process that is what I think is most uh, important. But it is interesting, as you note, that the trust of the science folks are literally the exact opposite of what I understand science to be, which is a process of tentatively arriving at understandings that are subject to change and revision at any given time, rather than just trusting, well, the experts have it right. And uh, that was actually framed most blatantly in a uh, Forbes editorial earlier this year uh, that was entitled, uh, you must not do your own research when it comes to science. As if there is, uh, I know that the, uh, the allegory has been made, the analogy has been made quite a bit recently of science as a religion, but this is really scientism uh, basically enshrining a priest class, this technical scientific class that cannot be questioned, that we must simply trust and obey. And I deconstructed that particular editorial uh, in a Propaganda Watch, a video that I did earlier this year called Don't Do Your Own Research, mm -hmm. Propaganda Watch, um, that I'll direct people to if they're interested. But long story short, no, of course, that is inherently and essentially not just anti-scientific, but anti-human. You should just trust what you are being told. No, that is the very definition of a tyranny in which you simply defer to a, a, an expert in each and everything. Now, that is not to say that there is not a genuine expertise, that people who dedicate their lives to the study of various subjects may have more information about a subject than you do. Of course, that is the case. And often we do entrust other people. I entrust my car to the mechanic because I can't fix it myself, that sort of thing. That certainly takes place. But all I would hope that always takes place in a setting where I at least reserve judgment to be able to get a second opinion or to come to my own conclusion or to differ from the expert. When we are told you must not question what you are being told, that is when all of my spidey senses start tingling and I realize that we're being set up for something. So yes, the 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 anti-scientism, the anti-science nature of these claims of scientism, trust the science, are inherently a, a structure, a part of this biosecurity paradigm um, that I think needs to be directly confronted head on. Do not simply defer to the expert opinion. Take it on board. Do more research to find out whether or not that thing that you are being told has any basis in reality. And don't ever think that you have capital T, the truth, <laughs> that you have come to the final conclusion on anything, at least be willing to question your own beliefs. That goes in both directions. I know that I am cast as a conspiracy theorist. All right, I will embrace the label. Sure, I theorize about conspiracies, as I think absolutely everyone else does as well. But at any rate, uh, that, uh, that doesn't mean that I'm on a team. 
and that I have to believe, oh, well, a conspiracy theorist, the, the conspiracy theory that's going around is this. Therefore, I have to believe it. Oh, the Rothschilds patented SARS-CoV-2 in 2015. Well, I guess I just believe it. I don't have to check into it for myself. No, no, no. Never, ever join a team and abrogate your own self uh, 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 your your own ability to research these things for yourself, because that is actually the fundamental layer of everything that I'm doing is saying, look, I am literally, I'm not trained. I'm not a media expert. I'm not a, I'm not a scientist or a philosopher or historian. I studied English literature uh, back in university. I did minor in philosophy, actually. So I guess I am a philosopher of sorts. <laughs> uh, but uh, don't, uh, that uh, the, the documentable truth or falsity of the things that I am pointing to, of the documents and the things that I am pointing to are independently verifiable by anyone, no matter what that degree you may or may not have uh, says on it. Yeah, and I think what's interesting too is um, a mentor of mine um, in the science field said that, you know, if you really understand your subject well, you can explain it to anyone. So there's a lot of people who say, you pick up a magazine like Nature and you flip to an article, you can't read it because it's like in this totally technical language that only a certain group of people can understand. But you can have somebody in that area of expertise and if they're able, if they fully understand it, they could tell somebody like you and me exactly what it is. So the understanding I think is very simple and anybody can reach it. It's just their level of how they communicate it will change. Um, but so we're talking about not, um, not subscribing to a group or a label, or there's this real focus on um, your autonomy and individual sovereignty. And that brings me to our um, last topic that I want to explore, which is something I've never really heard of before. I've heard of Agora, but I haven't heard of Agorism. Um, and I wonder if you could share a bit about that. So for people who are not familiar with Agora, this comes from the uh, old Greek concept of the marketplace is generally, I think, how it's translated. But that I don't think captures the essence of it because we tend to think of that in a certain context. But this isn't just simply about a space for economic transaction. It's about social interaction and uh, the public square, essentially, in, in all of its forms, including, of course, economic transaction, but all of the other things that come along with that. And so the Agora is the goal of agorism, creating the space for voluntary interaction among consenting adults uh, is essentially the, the foundational uh, ethos for the uh, agora that is envisioned by agorism, which is both a philosophy, but also, and underlying this, an, uh, a practice that was developed by Samuel Konkin III, who was a, uh, uh, actually a, a Canadian from Saskatchewan, I believe, um, who uh, was a, a libertarian, uh, but he, he started to spearhead this, this sort of other way, which was not just about the philosophy or some sort of political t study. It was about actually achieving real um, space for voluntary consensual relations between adult human beings in the real world. How do we do that? And so he started to develop this and he started to come up with the idea of counter economics, as he called it, as a way of achieving the agora, which is the goal of agorism. And counter economics uh, essentially is this the not only again, not only the study, but the practice of participating in economic relations of all kinds, including the kinds that are 
prohibited or prescribed by the government. So, for example, if the government says that you might need a special license, a special piece of paper from an accredited institution in order to cut someone's hair, then a counter economist would say, no, I don't, and would cut that person's hair anyways, assuming, of course, they wanted that done and they would exchange money. And perhaps they wouldn't even report that money uh, being exchanged to the tax authorities. Wow. And um, through the practice of counter econ uh, econ economics, we can achieve more of that space for the agora, the marketplace of voluntary human interaction, at which the end goal is all relations to be voluntary, which um, is, I suppose, I don't, I, I don't see this anymore, but I, I suppose for some people who haven't even encountered this idea might sound almost like a scary prospect. No, we need mummy and daddy government there to watch over everything and to keep the bad man away and to wipe our nose when we get sick and what have you. Um, I, I would just invite people who are still trapped in that mentality to explore the idea of agorism and what uh, that vision of the future might look like if that were to be achieved. Uh, they can do that through directly through the works of uh, Samuel Edward Conkin III. Uh, he, for example, wrote the Agorist Primer, which is available completely for free online. So you can read through that and get a better idea of this. But I think broadly speaking, that's, that's sort of my vision for what I was talking about earlier, creating the communities that will form the basis for not only economic trade, but really social interaction in a way that we don't have to worry about whatever structure of control is trying to be forced on us by various self-declared public health authorities. Yeah, I, I think um, what's probably uh, scariest for um, most people is like, I've heard uh, retorts to, um, well, if you're suggesting that, that's just anarchy. And the way that like the assumed definition of anarchy there, the connotation is just, it'll be chaos and there'll be so much mayhem and it'll be violent. And, you know, we're just animals who will be totally out of control. What's interesting about that is that if you look at animals in the wild, they're not really out of control. It works really well, but it's that fear um, that's embedded where, you know, not being able to let go. Um, have you experienced, uh, have you come across like yourself and with other people that you've met who have started living that way? And what can you say about that? Uh, yes, yes, I have. For example, on my program, a number of times I've held conversations with uh, Derek Bros, who's at the Conscious Resistance Network, uh, theconsciousresistance.com, who is very much a promoter of agorism and the agorist philosophy. So I've had a number of conversations with him, and he's attempting to carve out a space for something approaching that, at least in his own life. And one one manifestation of that is a project that he's involved in right now called the Counter Economic Underground Railroad in which uh, he is helping people to uh, escape the United States into Mexico, sort of the, uh, the opposite of the, yeah. the dreaded invasion of the Mexicans coming to the U.S. No, the, US, the Americans are trying to flee to Mexico to achieve something of uh, greater autonomy in their lives, and so he's helping to facilitate that. So um, that's one example of that. Another example that I talked about and promoted recently uh, was an idea that actually kind of came about semi-spontaneously on air, I was in a conversation with uh, Ernest Hancock at Declare Your Independence radio program, and we were talking about various solutions and how to motivate people towards creating these economic spaces for transaction outside of the monetary paradigm as it exists. And Ernest uh, mentioned that he had 
uh, a domain, blackmarketfriday.info, that he had registered years ago because he knew at some point it would probably come in handy. And the idea was to monkey wrench this idea of Black Friday, which I know is an American thing. Is that a Canadian thing at this point? I haven't been in yeah. Canada for 20 years. <laughs> yeah, they started yeah. here too. <laughs> oh, dear. All right. Well, I... I remember Boxing Day being the big sale day, but anyway, uh, Black Friday, which is now becoming an international thing, as I observed in my conversation, I've even seen at the shopping mall here in Japan, Black Friday sale, like, wow. how did this happen? Anyway, I'm taking that energy around that idea. Well, here's a massive shopping day, and for the first time ever, electronic sales are going to surpass physical sales because of this crisis that we're living through. So we decided, why not link that to something where people can start dipping their toes in the water of transacting outside of the system and creating the Agorist space. So we uh, uh, brought in Mike Swadek, who had started something called agorist.market, which is the simplest of simple websites. It's literally just a listing of businesses that are willing to accept alternative complementary currencies, precious metals, cryptocurrencies for their products or services. And there's no, there's no script or bells or whistles. It's just a basic site of listings like that to which you then can get directed directly to the sellers and, and interact with them directly. And so we decided to link blackmarketfriday.info to agorist.market as a way of starting to connect this and, and getting some energy around this idea. Hey, you're doing Black Friday? Well, why don't you just commit to buy one thing through something other than the fiat money that you've been told is money and it's just dipping your toe in the water and seeing how it goes. And I am delighted to actually observe that agorist.market uh, crashed on Black Market Friday because of overwhelming response. There were too many people wow. trying to access the server. But that that uh, website is backed up on something called IPFS, which is the Interplanetary File System, which is a, uh, a, a peer-to-peer networking protocol, which operates in independently of the, the HTTP, the World Wide Web that we're all familiar with. And the IPFS version of that website was up and fine and was accessible. But the the www, the, 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 the normie web version of that website went down because too many people were trying to access it. So that A speaks to the, the power of this idea and the fact that people are interested in it and B also to the power of various alternatives, including internet alternatives, decentralized web technologies that are going to be more and more important as conversations like these ones are going to be increasingly censored in the future for committing wrong think, crime think uh, uh, against the, the, the verities of the public health authorities. And I wonder if we could just end off with, um, you've talked a bit about, um, what's his name? Uh, I can't pronounce it correctly. Etienne de Boite um, <laughs> on civil disobedience or the politics of that. Um, I wonder if you could talk about, because that's really speaking to how powerful we each are individually. And, and how simple it is to change direction. Yes, I love to talk about this because it's such a powerful book and it's such a small, it's essentially an essay. Um, you can easily read it in one sitting. Um, and so I would really recommend people do so. Again, this is widely available online for free. Uh, so it's uh, called the, Vol- the Discourse on Voluntary Servitude. Uh, it is by Etienne de la Buedi. Um, And it is such a, powerful and basic idea, but essentially it is the insight. Uh, This is five centuries old at this point. This was uh, produced in 16th century France. Um, But as Boidy observed, uh, tyrants can only be tyrants. They can only be effective if they have the support of the people. If people 
comply with the orders that they are given. That is how tyranny functions. And when people disobey, when people refuse to comply, the tyrant will fall. And that speaks to that, what I was saying earlier, we do really, and literally, we have the power in this system. We can change it overnight if we do all decide to say no. And uh, people will say, well, not everyone's going to decide to say no. That's that's very true. I certainly cannot tell people what to do or not to do. That's exactly the point of what I'm saying, actually. But I can at least decide for myself and my family what I comply with and what I do not comply with. And unless and until we start drawing lines in the sand and start saying no, we will never understand the power that we actually possess. And it's something that I keep going back to in my Propaganda Watch series, because I think it's something that we need to consciously keep in the forefront of our minds. The fact that there is so much concerted propaganda to try to get us to believe certain things or to act certain ways speaks in and of itself to the power that we have. They would not be spending so much time propagandizing to us and trying to influence our behavior and decisions if our behavior and decisions weren't important. They still need our consent, and that is manufactured through these types of propaganda techniques uh, that we're subjected to. So uh, I just want people to once again understand, we do have the power here. We can say no. And there will be, I'm sure, consequences to that when and if and as it starts to happen on mass scales. But if we don't force that issue, then we will be directed into the Great Reset Agenda or whatever else is coming down the line by self-declared public health authorities and others. So um, that's that's ultimately the, my message, is we really do have the power. The only question is whether or not we're going to flex that muscle. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think I'd just like to um, remind people, I found this very interesting in my research that just last year in 2019, Human Rights Watch had a report that condemned China for everything that we are voluntarily implementing on ourselves. The surveillance, the biometric scanning, the tracking, the social credit thing. And we seem to have forgotten it, but, you know, we can change. So, um, Thank you so much for coming on our on this channel and speaking to us and sharing some of your information. Um, there's so much. This is like the tip of the iceberg. James's information on his website. Um, go to CorbettReport.com. He's on Minds.com, BitChute. Um, there's some other platforms as well, and um, but his website is the one I go to all the time. So uh, you can link up to there, and he also has. Like he mentioned, the conscious resistance. Um, I've come across other great researchers through him, uh, The Last American Vagabond, Whitney Webb. So it's just there's endless um, resources you can get from there. So thank you so much, James. And um, take care in Japan and keep helping us out. We appreciate it. Well, thank you. And thank you for hosting a conversation like this. It's important uh, that people do so. Even if uh, they don't agree with everything I say, that's perfectly fine. But I think we need to be having conversations like this in order to have any attempt at steering this societal push in a different direction. So thank you.